host, Dr. K. Eyre. Implementation of trauma-informed practices in schools requires a whole-of-school approach, endorsed and reinforced by leaders at the school. Principals and leadership teams face complex and challenging difficulties in their roles. Trauma-informed leaders hold a unique set of values and principles that prioritise safety, equity and learning in the school community. So what do these practices look like and sound like on the school grounds? In this three-part series on trauma-informed leadership, we speak with Elizabeth Verstappen. Elizabeth was previously the principal of Saturdine Primary School in Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. Elizabeth has been a school principal for several decades with a commitment to improving the educational outcomes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. Elizabeth and her team at Saturdine Primary School have garnered recognition and awards for their use of trauma-informed practices. The school has some of the highest rates of Indigenous students enrolled in the region. The school has implemented the Trauma-Informed Behaviour Support Program over a four-year period and have been the pilot site for the evaluation of the program. In this first of the series, Elizabeth will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr Govind Krishnamurthy, and myself. I hope you find these discussions helpful. Um, hi, everyone, and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govind Krishnamurti, and I'm here as always with Dr. K.A. Hi, Kay. Hi, Govind. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. Um, we're going. We're speaking with Liz today, um, which is very exciting. Hi, Liz. How are you? Hello, Govind. Hello, Kay. Hi. It's lovely to speak to you again, Liz. We've worked with you um, at the Saturnine Primary School in Alice Springs, and we've worked together for quite a while now. So it's mm. lovely to be able to catch up and reflect on some of the work we've done. Um, and I suppose we're focusing today on the um, on a framework of trauma-informed um, educational leadership. Um, really, you were the um, principal there at Saturday for quite a long time. Mm. Um, so thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So Liz, we'll, we'll jump right into it. So this is a three-part series. So in this very first part, we're, we're focusing in on the students themselves um, and thinking about their experience at the school and their kind of relationships within the school community. Um, what would be your kind of thoughts about what um, trauma-informed practice actually makes us understand about what students need um, in the school environment, Liz? Mm. Well, um, in thinking about that, 
The first thing that really springs to mind for me is safety. So safety was a very big part of our thinking initially, um, safety for students, but safety also for staff and just that feeling that school was a safe place for kids. So, you know, how, how you um, create that feeling of safety for kids so that they the students want to come to school and that they feel that they're um, part of the school and that it's their school, really. So I guess um, there, was, there was a real need to have a, a mindset shift around that whole thing about what children need or what our kids needed and um, change that thinking for us that all, um, that all behaviour communicates a need and understanding that need and um, then working together as a group to try and meet that need. And initially the need was quite basic. So the need was we need a uniform so that we look as though we belong to school. We don't have any food in the morning, so we need breakfast before we can learn because we haven't had food. Um, we need maybe a place to have a shower. We might need shoes. Um, so quite basic sort of needs. We need to be welcomed into the classroom and feel that we're part of the classroom. Um, we need people to accept us as we walk through the door and not reject us because we're running late or because we need to sit outside for a while because something's happened at home. We need to have the trust that we can connect with you and you will listen to what we have to say and not judge what, what we need. So those very fundamental basic needs were things that we needed to take quite seriously with that initial um, aspect of safety for the kids. So, so that there was that sort of physical safety sense. Um, also that sense that we needed to connect with families in that space too, because families often would bring kids to school and would be tentative about whether they were going to be judged because of the way the kids looked or because they didn't have breakfast or because someone in the family had passed away and, and they didn't really want to tell us about that or something had happened at home and they didn't want to tell us about that. So just being able to accept them into the school too and say, you're welcome, the child, you know, they're here, that's fine. Anything we need to know, you know, do we need to drop them at home, blah, blah, blah. So, so that whole thing about um, the safety of, of the relationship, I suppose, in the school and for the kids to feel safe there. A lot of our kids, we, we discovered later on, came to school because it was a safe place. They didn't come to school to learn. You know, they didn't say we're coming to school to learn. They said we're coming to school. Well, they didn't even say it. They would turn up at school because it was safe. And they knew then, as time went on, that nobody would judge them, that they could have food, they could sit in the sandpit if they needed to do that, all morning if they needed to do that, and nobody would give them a hard time and that that was their safe place. Some of them would even just go to sleep and sleep for two hours. I mean, it's a fairly extreme case. So safety was a really, really important aspect of it. And we did a bit of work with um, Dr. Um, 
John Howard. John Howard? No. Um, Howard Bath. Sorry, John Howard. You can edit that one out, Govind. <laughs> Howard Bath. And he had the three pillars of trauma-informed care. And safety was right up there for him too. So, um, you know, that safety for kids. And then that translated to safety for staff. So when you've got a relationship with the child, you feel much more inclined not to, you know, not to set that child up to get angry. And so your relationship with them is your safety too. And so that physical safety then um, follows through. I think that's a really interesting idea you were talking about, you know, just flipping that kind of deficit narrative around special needs for these children to, you know, thinking about them as having additional rights. Um, and I think, Kay, you've talked about that too, about, you know, offering, you know, part of safety is this idea that you're offering them access to the things they need within that school environment. And some of that is practical, but some of that, like you're saying, is about what's going to help them feel okay and not judged and not heightened or angry. Mm, mm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, did you want to say anything about those additional rights and, and how that kind of plays out in school environments? I was just thinking as you were both talking as well, what a, in my experience in general, what a huge mind shift that is for the average teacher. Mm. Because we're so, like even the literature, as Gavin says, we still talk about children with special needs and while what's underlying it, hopefully, is a strengths-based approach, the labels still have those connotations mm. to a deficit model historically, don't they? Children with special needs in special education, whatever. Instead of looking at the child first, who just happens to have additional needs. Mm. So mm. it's it, the, our whole institution and the way we look at things is not from a child's voice and them at the centre, really. It tends mm. to be, this is what we think is the best for mm. you, therefore mm. we are deeming this upon you sort of thing. It's a, I think that which you probably explain either in, they'll chat about Liz in this episode or the next episode, how do you actually get people to start moving towards being okay when they look out of their classroom and they think that child's been in that sand pit for three hours, that's not good. Instead of that child's been in the sand pit, that's great. He's in the school. He must need to be there. Mm. That's you know, what they need. Whole, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very big shift, Kay. As, oh, as you know, mm. um, and expecting people to do that in a school, expecting staff to do that, um, mm. is a big is a big shift too because, you know, schools are so institutionalised in a way and, you know, for us we had to realise that we needed to shift that structure, you know, because when you think of a school, if kids had a lot more say in how schools operated, you get a sense that they would be much more productive and happier places. Yes. And the idea that... If a child walks into our buildings, because that's what schools effectively are, mm -hmm. and we say, this is what you have to do in our school. These are the rules of our school and you need to do all these things. And if you don't, 
you won't be welcome in our school. Now, that is often the message we give to kids. Yep. We needed to shift that narrative to say, this is your school. And it wasn't quite a democratic model because that goes a wee bit too far, I think, the democratic schooling model. But it was to say, this is your school. What do you need us to do to make this work for you? So it was that whole shift of, you know, that whole institutional thing. Like when you do a lot of PDs in schools, as you would have done, Kay, and many, everyone does, the focus is always on learning outcomes. Yep. Learning outcomes and how we collect the data and, you know, interrogate the data and make our plans around that for kids to learn more effectively or to get better results. Um, and, And when you sort of get locked into that, you miss the point that it's really about the child that you need to focus on and how are they going to learn and what are the different styles we need to adopt to help them to learn And, you know, and what does learning look like in our schools? So all those things we had to think about and talk about a lot and model. So, um, you know, I guess if you go on with an idea like that, you've got to back, you've got to back yourself. You can't sort of go in and say to everyone, this is what we're going to do. So, you know, you've got to believe that that's a really good attitude and you've got to sell it and you've got to bring people on board and when they see that it starts to work then they come on board and then you somehow have to sell it to your colleagues which is a much harder thing to do I'd have to say but um, certainly you know it would be great to think that in years to come that whole thinking around what is a school might shift a little bit in people's minds and they might become a little bit more open and friendlier, although schools are quite friendly, I suppose, for kids, but a little bit more, um, I suppose, directed by the students who are in the school rather than this is how schools are supposed to be. I remember one of your staff saying in um, a conversation that we had that one of her biggest learnings from the trauma-informed study and the PD and stuff that she did was that the environment had to fit the child. Yeah. The child shouldn't be forced to fit the environment that was Mm. there, which is what we tend to do. This is the environment you need to fit in with us. And that was part of her, you know, flipping her mindset around that the environment needs to fit the child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because if you were a kid, how would you want your classroom to look? You know, Stephen Heppel did some great work and it was quite inspirational in that space. You know, I sort of loved some of his concepts and ideas and, of course, that all takes money and mm. things like that. But, you know, the, the great idea of having a running track around a school and when children get a little bit, you know, unsettled, come on, how many times That's can right. you run around the running track before you feel you can come back into the classroom? Track your steps, you know, take a bit with you or something and go round and calculate that you know those sorts of clever little initiatives or you know um, I loved remote control cars and I had them in the front office for a while which drove the front office staff crazy I'd have to say but I did love them and the kids would come in and they'd take a remote control car and they could drive it around the school and then drive it back to me 
before the battery ran out. Um, and, you know, people were a bit, oh, there's these kids around, you know, they're driving them into things. And, well, you know, you try and drive a remote control car around the school, it's a lot trickier than you think. Yeah. So, you know, they would feel... It was a great idea. They would feel a bit inspired. They would look forward to doing it. It gave them a bit of a hook, you know. Well, if you, you know, get this little bit of work done, you could go to Miss Lizzie's office and drive the remote control car around the school once. And if kids were feeling a little bit unsettled, just to be able to do that, you know, it's it's a confidence-building thing. It's a trust thing. It's a relationship-building thing. Ticks a lot of boxes, those those little things that most schools would go, no, that's too disruptive. Mm. We I'll, can't I'll, have that happening. I'll be the devil's advocate of voice of the people say that. I mean, one of the things that often comes up is when we talk about these things is, you know, how can schools be everything to all kids with all these different needs? And, and you know, there's inevitably the question of equity, around, you know, mm. how, how, how does discipline work? Are we kind of letting these kids get away with, you know, not engaging curriculum? Are we doing them a disservice of not enforcing these rules? Well, what is your sort of position on that in terms of, you know, what from a trauma and from leadership kind of point of view, what is inclusion, you know, when it comes mm. to these kids who need it? Yeah. Well, initially, it, it was a problem. Initially, um, kids would want to do certain things in the school. For instance, and we've talked about this before, I have toy, I had toys in my office, you know, lots of toys, puzzle toys and Lego and all sorts of things. Kids would come to my office when they were feeling a little bit about, about to blow, I suppose, when they were feeling a bit discombobulated, and they could sit there and play with toys. They didn't have to talk. They didn't have to do anything. They could just play with toys. Now, initially, staff said, that's not fair. And other kids said, that's not fair. We want to do that too. But, you know, once we explained to kids, and we could explain it to the whole class, the whole school, in fact, because we used to have morning musters where we would talk about things that were going to happen during the day, that kids need, kids get what they need, not what they want. And so your turn might come or you mightn't need to do that. You might be able to learn all right in the classroom without having to do anything extra like go out and play in Miss Lizzie's office or run around the running track or go out and kick the footy with so-and-so, you know. But you might like to do this if you finish your work and that's a little bit different. You might be in a special maths group or you might get the opportunity to do robotics with a special group because you can concentrate and focus really well. Kids understand that. And I reckon it took six months before it wasn't a problem anymore. We didn't have 20 kids in the front office all wanting to come and play with the toys. We had one or two. They bought a little note. They had a timer. And when that was done, they went back to class. It wasn't a problem at all. And so, um, you know, we were greatly relieved, I suppose, but we also trusted that the kids could do that. And, you know, and we explained to them and we praised them when they could do that. So to say that we're not going to try it because this will happen, 
you've got to sort of trust your instinct with a lot of that stuff. But I suppose you also have to be open to the idea that that could work. And if you're not, it's not going to work. So there's a mindset shift there too. But, you know, not everyone loves toys like I do. So how do you say to people, you know, get into the play side of things. It's very therapeutic. Um, look at some of that stuff and do it yourself. You know, you don't have to be the one that, that because you're the leader in the school, you don't have to be the one that's controlled and always in charge and always emotionally sort of calm, although that helps. Um, but, you know, you don't always have to be the one that's not having the fun. And, and the kids enjoy it when, when you are part of the team too. You know, they really want to know that you're part of the team too. So, yeah, I think it is a big mind shift, though. It is. Just, just hearing you talk, I mean, what, one of the things I think that you've done at the school is that the principal's office was from this, you know, fearful, looming kind of you know, place that you go to when you're in trouble mm. to a place of sort of safety and regulation and, and you know, that, that kids kind of use when they need to. And just hearing you speak, you, you know, I reflected on how sometimes I've heard kids say, I'll, I'll go up to the principal's office. I'll, I'll, I'm not scared of her. You know, let, I'll take it on. And it's almost as though, you know, they're saying there's this looming kind of thing that's hanging over my head. And actually, even though it's unpleasant, me just facing up to it and having some sort of control over it or coercion mm. over it. Some mm. brings me some level of safety. So they are mucking up anyway to get there, to get that. But sure. they're changing the dynamic of how they're getting there. Yeah, and, and some kids will do that. I mean, some kids know that if they do a certain thing, then that might happen. But, you know, you can talk to a child about that. Yeah. Like, you know, strategies we used was, you know, some kids that found it really hard to settle in the morning, I would pick them up first thing in the morning and say, come to my office and we're going to talk about how the day looks for you. So we would have a, a little template and we would go through what, what the steps were for the day, how the day was going to look, what you could hope to achieve in that time and where the little bits were that you might have some say in, in you know, what you want to do. And that was accepted across the school. I could set that up. Then I would walk back with the child to the teacher and say, this is what we've determined today. And at these points, this is going to happen. And I'll make sure so-and-so knows about that so that, you know, that'll be good for that. And this is when you're going to come and see me and I'll make sure I'm there then. Um, so giving, having that conversation and building that trust, it, you know, it's a bit time-consuming initially, but getting to know kids like that is, is very fulfilling in a school sense. And um, very productive, I'd have to say, because you can diffuse situations really quickly when kids know that they can trust you and that you're going to be fair and you're going to stick to your word, which is really, really important. And, there, you know, and there would be, in our little school, there were a number of um, people who were paramount to that, that working, not just the classroom teacher. So we had school counsellor, which we fought long and hard to 
have and retain in our school, which we were very fortunate with, and she had good relationships with the kids. We had a senior teacher wellbeing who um, worked from the therapy room that we had that um, we were fortunate enough to build. It sounds wonderful, but, you know, there was a lot of um, negotiation and discussion around this, and we started off with a very substandard school. Um, and there was an assistant principal. There was, you know, an Aboriginal liaison person. There was a maintenance officer who the kids absolutely loved, and there was our, you know, um, person, our bookkeeper, um, or our business manager, who the kids absolutely loved too. Now, they all had toys as well. And they knew um, they had a relationship with the kids. And so there were these key people around the school that also connected with the kids. It wasn't just the principal or the assistant principal or the teacher. So building that capacity for the kids to be able to interact with a broader group of people, and they... You know, people would say, well, they'd play them off against each other and do that. Some of them may have, but um, it didn't happen a lot. And kids understood that, you know, that these things they were allowed to do and they got quite possessive about it and they would say, come and tell me if some kid was, you know, not doing the right thing with that with that little bit of time they had or something, they would come and say, so-and-so is supposed to be doing that, and he's not doing that, you know. And so then so the children started to or the students started to um, police some of that stuff and, and had a say over it, which was very, very powerful, you know, because there used to be one, we used to have a rule that there was no chasing on the playground, and it was my rule, you know. I would stand up at the muster we'd have in the mornings and I'd say, and remember... What does Miss Lizzie say? And they'd all go, no, Chasey. Why don't we have Chasey? Because a lot of people would ask, why don't you have Chasey? And I would say, we don't have Chasey because when you play Chasey, people get upset and then people get angry and then people start getting really cranky with each other and it just doesn't work. So no Chasey. So the kids would come running up to me at recess or lunch and they'd say, oh, someone's playing Chasey, Miss well, we better go and see about that. And I remember when I left the school, they gave me this T-shirt that says no chasing. And it's <laughs> quite funny, you know, that Donna sometimes rings me up and says, maybe you should come back and do yard duty and wear your no chasing T-shirt because, you know, there's chasing going on. So, yeah. um, I just wanted to say about that, Liz. I mean, I just want to mention this in case I don't get a chance because, one of the things that really is striking about what you're describing is that not only are you the principal, but you're a leader in like that relational pedagogy, you know, in the mm -hmm. way you kind of talk to kids and you're modeling that to the, not just to the kids, the families, but also to the staff, I think, which gives them permission and, and a, a kind of a model to do it off of. But I, I wanted to kind of chat to you because there are times where you are setting limits, you know, there are times where you are, you know offering suspensions and things like that mm -hmm. but it's coming at the back of all this relationship building can you talk to that a little bit in terms of how you offer that and how they come back into the school yeah so um we we do suspend kids and um we don't do it easily but if behavior is threatening safety of students and safety of other kids and some of our students um you know, would get very angry and we would say, 
you need some calming time. We need to take you home. We need to talk to mum and dad. Maybe you can spend a day at home tomorrow and then you're welcome back. So it wouldn't be such a big deal. Um, we'd write the suspensions up in the normal way. We would write all the behaviours up. Um, we used an SWPBS methodology for collecting the behaviour data. That was the only thing we really used SWPBS for because it was a very useful tool for us to watch our behaviour go down, which it did significantly over the years. Um, so we would talk to the child about that or we would just say, come on, mate, you know, you've, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this and students aren't feeling safe now. They don't feel safe because you are not, you know, being safe in the classroom. The teacher's feeling worried now because you are not being safe. We need to take you home. So we'd take them home. I mean, we had some incidents that, as schools do, that were, were pretty over the top, really, and we would suspend a child for a length of time over that. But we would take the child home, we would talk to the family, we would explain why, and, I mean, sometimes families weren't very happy about that, but we would explain why we would invite the family to come back to the school when the child um, re-entered and sit with the child if they wished to. We would try and make it very, you know, sort of um, available for parents to do that. Some did more than others, but most of them felt, um, you know, a little bit sort of unsettled in a school environment. And it was a bit of a shame job for them if the child misbehaved. So they were, you know, you had to be very careful about that. But when the child returned, we welcomed the child back. So we didn't revisit the incident. So often you get a re-entry meeting. And I have a little bit of problem with re-entry meetings. I know it's a good place to start from again, fresh start, all the rest of it. But it's not really a fresh start when you're sitting there with the child and going over what happened. And often with our kids, that would then escalate the problem again. And in their head, they would have that problem again. And they would be angry with you because they didn't want you to talk about it again. That had been done. It had been finished with. They didn't want you now sitting there and telling them about that again because that made them feel angry. Because, you know, they don't like to behave like that, a lot of our kids. And, and we need to understand that, that they want to be as normal and, you know, as functional as any other kid in the school. And so when you start telling them about things that they did that they feel a bit shame about and they probably wish they hadn't done it, um, then it's just counterproductive. So it's better to say, you're welcome back. It's really good to see you. Sometimes we'd say, is there anyone you need to um, fix it with? So the consistent language that we developed around the school were, was quite simplified and that was a big body of work we did so everything was very consistent everyone used the same language there was signage up everywhere um, so we would say things like so you know one of the charts we did was one like this and you, I don't know if you can see that but um, it had very simple language on it and this was sort of from the SWPBS um, idea 
but we wanted it simple and we wanted our students to have had a say in it. So to say, now, you have to fix this. Who do you need to fix it with? And they would be quite open about who they needed to fix it with. And so you would teach them. I would go with them and I would say, do you want to do this with me first so you know what to say so you don't feel, you know, shame job in front of them so we would go through it and they would go and they would say it and and our staff were beautiful in accepting that because um you would often stand there and think please accept this apology because it's very heartfelt and it's going to make a big difference and the staff would never let me down so it was always a fantastic thing for me that you could stand there with a little kid and I'd go I'm really sorry that I threw that rock and smashed that window in the classroom the other day and, and um, you know, I'm sorry. I would just say something like that. The teacher would say, yes, it was, you know, it made me feel a bit sad and worried, but look, it's fine now. We can, you know, you're welcome back in the classroom. Everyone's here. And sometimes they would even say sorry to the class, which was really huge for our kids. So, yeah. So I think that, you know, that um, empathy, which... It's a, it's a fine line sometimes that, you know, balancing it and keeping everyone feeling that, that they're feeling safe. The staff especially was always a big concern of mine that we would always check in, make sure that they were okay with it, touch base at the end of the day. So, you know, it was a constant balancing act in a way with that. But for children to be able to say that, um, I need to fix it now. And our kids would start to say after a couple of years it was common for them to come and say, okay, I'm sorry I did that, miss, and now I need to fix it. And so they would be able to fix it. And we would say things like, you have to use your kind words and, you know, your kind voices. And so they would talk in language like that. So it was a real learning for them about how to respond. Wow, that's that's really great. I'm just mindful of the time. Liz, thank you so much. I'll I'll just throw it to Kay if she's got any final questions or comments about this episode. Um, no, I don't think I have actually. Uh, yeah, other than to say it's wonderful to hear it, you know, um, re recounted in action that there's there's positives there because so often we hear um, what other schools do and the natural default is, yes, well, how would that work here, you know, but it's mm. not about the building or the resources, what we've talked about. It's about the the staff's attitude and giving the child voice in their, in their education and starting with that regardless of the resources around you. It's about the people. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it sure is. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Liz. Um, we've got a the next episode where we will talk about um, the teachers, your staff, and how you build a cohesive group that have got your back, like in the story you just told us. Um, so we'll explore that in the next episode. So thank you very much, Liz. Thanks, Kay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. That was Elizabeth Verstappen. Speaking about trauma-informed leadership, be sure to keep an eye out for the second episode in this series. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's T 
IPBS.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.